appreciate your... Um, you guys have been through a lot and you've heard a lot and, and you don't need to hear another speaker. But, Thank uh, you, Gail. That's in, <laughs> in conclusion, I like to illustrate my all the negative thoughts I have. TJ, stand up. <laughs> I want to I uh, begin, I want to launch you into a series of studies uh, over the next few years. I want to give you the kernel of a thought. I encourage you to give a great deal of thought to in the next few years. And that's the concept of hope. That is the concept of hope. 1 Peter 3.15 will be uh, memorized and reviewed by Brett. Tell us what it says. But in your heart... Wait just a minute. Kevin, I want you to tell me what the verse says when he's through Go. Put in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, and give them a reason for the hope that you have. All right, what does this say, Kevin? Uh, we should be prepared to uh, tell why we have our hope. What's the first of those commands? What's the first, the first instruction he gives you? Do it again. I didn't ask you the question. I asked you to quote the verse. Now, Brett, when I want to know what you think about the verse, I'll say, I'll say, now here's how this goes, Brett. I say, what do you think about the verse? Then you come. Otherwise, when I say quote it, you just quote it. Don't take control. Quote that, yes, yeah, quote that verse again. Quote the verse, Brett. All right, that's good. Good job, Brett. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Okay. First Peter three fifteen. Now, in the, the King James it says, but always be prepared to make a defense to anyone to cause you to account for the hope that is in you. And that word is an apology. It means an apologetic. It means that you understand what what you're talking about. So what does he say, Kevin? He, he, there's at least two major points he, he brings into you. At least three major points. At least four major points. You better go quick, Kevin. They're building on you. You're going to hurry up. You're going to have about a dozen, about a hundred. Put God the Lord in your life. Okay, it's reverence Christ. Right? And in, in your version, which is the unabridged adulterous version what is it must be the NIV or something or the early, early paraphrase it's reference what what is what is yours no what does it say try again this is a trick question a trick question start at the beginning of the verse first Peter 315 it's a trick question you're talking about set apart Christ's Lord it's reverence in the King James reverence Christ is Lord, all right? And so it says in, in your witnessing, in your testimony to people, in the E squared portion, the evangelistic part of E squared, what is the initial point? What would it be, Dale? Correct. The focus is Christ. The focus is not your victory. The focus is not how well you look. The focus is not what he thinks of me, right? It's a reverence for who Christ is. And that's a very key thing in evangelism or witnessing something. Just come to peace with Christ and just talk to the guy about 
what Christ has done in your life. Are you with me? We get caught up in how does he think my testimony sounds. Was it dramatic enough? Did he rescue me from the pits of something? Are you with me on that? That's not what he says. Reverence Christ is our. What's the second major point he made? Be prepared. Now, now if I'm going to be prepared, what does that mean? Huh? Better thought about it. Do you agree? You ought to know what you're talking about. Would you agree with that? Is that what he's saying? All right, now what, what, what am I to be prepared with, Kevin? Uh, All right. Now, why did he use that phrase, defend the hope that is in us? What? You're in a war. Okay. Uh -huh. You know you're going to be challenged. Now, what, now, challenged about what? Why you believe. Anybody want to comment on it? The question is, what is the, the third point is, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. What does that tell you? First, you must know your hope, reverence Christ. You must understand your hope, and you must be able to give a defense of your hope. You must understand what your hope is. Because it's being driven by what? Faith. No, because it's being driven by what? What does the verse say? You're, you're correct on that, Dexter, but what does the verse say? Because you have lived your hope so significantly in front of someone, somebody walks up to me, yeah. to you and tells you, what are you doing with your life? Is that what it says? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. So you must not only know your hope, you must be living your hope. Would you agree with that? Yes, sir. Well, that's what, okay. Now, the scripture says to you that if you can grasp the concept of hope that God has given you, that it will set you apart in the community of people you run around with. Now, my question to you all is this, and I'm not asking you for it. Well, you can answer it if you want to. How many of you really grasp the hope that Christ has told you to build your life on? Secondly, if you cannot articulate it and understand it, my question is, why can't you? Because you are commanded to. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Are we together? Then the question you've got to ask is, why is that so important? What did he command me to do that for? So the first thought I want to leave to you is first three... 1 Peter 3.15 leaves you no room to move around. One, you're commanded to understand your hope. And two, that as you live your hope, people will sense that in you. Now, a lot of you, a guy will know you, and he won't know you're a Christian or not a Christian. He knows you're a goody two-shoe, maybe. You maybe not sip on a booze or something like that, but he doesn't see anything in you that attracts him to him that is something he's struggling with. The distinctive in the Christian walk, guys, is your hope. It's a key thing to understand. All right, now I'm going to try to... Uh, take that on, if I may, and say why I think that's true. All right? Yes, sir. How do you get the people to ask you that? Do you just ask you to let your light shine? Or? 
The verse doesn't tell you. But the verse intimates or infers that if I am embraced with this hope, with this motivational schema, that guys are going to say, you're doing something I don't understand. How do you do that? That's what the animation of the verse is. Would we all agree with that? And there's other verses like letting your light so shine before men's time. Now it strikes me that the scripture says to me that as when I come to Christ, the word of sanctification means I am separated. Would you agree? And this being the world. That as I am found in Christ, I am a new creation. It calls me into the sanctified life, and the word sanctified means separated. But I am not called to separation. I am called to involvement. Would you agree with that? I am called to be, as the great Southern Baptist people say, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be uh, in the world, but not of the world. I'm to be in the world. I am to be in it. If you'll study the scriptures, it clearly talks about dealing with the believers and the non-believers. It calls you to a life to being involved in the world. Would we agree with that? A very strong verses about our participation in the world. It doesn't call us to a monastic order where we completely leave the world. There's no scripture that would take you there. Would we agree with that? That's a very important thing because as I get involved, it has told me don't become entangled. Right? But I don't know how to separate these two. And I'm involved and all of a sudden I sense I'm entangled. And I'm running around in this arena and trying to figure out how to stay away from that entanglement. Because entanglement from the scriptural point of view infers to me that I'm losing the war as I study those scriptures. The Timothy verses. Are we together on that? Now I've thought about this a lot. What is this? Well, let me suggest to you that he who stands here and has a foot here and a foot here is a double-minded man. That entanglement is when I give over into the world and I lose my effectiveness because now I am dancing to the world tune. Let me suggest to you that when I break over here, this is when my hope is in the world, and this is when I can keep my hope on God. If I don't differentiate those two, as I slide into involvement, I will inherently be sucked in to serving another master. Thus, I will become entangled. And when I become entangled in the worldly affairs, I will lose my effectiveness. How do you keep those two? How do you keep the ability to be separated, involved, and not entangled? And I want to suggest to it, it can only be done if you have a clear understanding of what you hope, who you hope in, and what you hope for. Do we agree? Do we see that? If I hope for the things of the world, I will be pulled to the affections of the world and become entangled. I can be in the world but if I hope of the things of God, then my motivation will be that way. And even though I'm involved in worldly affairs, I can keep it sorted out. And I can be motivated along God's line 
and thus stay from drifting into entanglement. James 1.8 says that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I have thought many a time, who is the unhappiest of the three? The non-believer who does not know Christ? The believer who knows Christ but has his hope firmly on Christ? Or the believer who knows Christ but is entangled in the world? And the unhappiest of the three must be the believer who is, can't sort out his hope. Thus he is struggling and falling and flopping like a fish on the beach all his life. Hope is a clear issue that you must come to grips with if you're going to make this journey through life. We are called to live in here, but, we cannot, but not to live over there. But we cannot execute this unless we have our hope clearly understood and differentiated as we are commanded to do in this verse. Any question or thought? Yes, sir. No, separate. Sanctification means separated, set apart. And I'm saying that as a Christian, when we first come to Christ, we find this new being in Christ, and we find our new fellowship of buddies, and we become being set apart, and we drift towards the holy huddle. As you move back into the world, as we are called to be in the world but not of the world, and, and do I need to give you verses, or do you understand there's lots of verses of us calling being involved with? Is that fair enough? That's not an issue with you guys. I'm called to be a man of God in the world, in the bank, and in my real estate, and in my law firms. And wherever I am, I am to be God's man. I'm dealing with people who do not believe, who do not have the Holy Spirit. I am their light. What is the mission of the Jewish nation? It was to be a church gathered. Do we agree? Are you with me? God's strategy was a church gathered. A church set on the hill so nations could say, wow, look what God's doing. What is the strategy of the church after the coming of Christ. It is the church scattered. Are you with me? The people aren't to walk by and say, oh, look at that Methodist church. Wow, look at that God. No, it's looking at you and you and you and you and you and you and saying, there's God in that person. Alien and exiles. Are we already together? As we drift through the world, they're seeing a little bit of God. That is the strategy of the post-Christ church. It is not the church gathered. It is the church scattered. Any problems with that? We are aliens and aliens. We are to be equipped to go into the world and set up a camp for God, an outpost in the alien world, and start winning people to Christ and building up a camp. That's the strategy. That's how he's doing it. Excuse me, as I understand the scripture, right? and I'm not getting any arguments from you guys on that. So as I come out of my separated world, as I'm set apart, I move to involvement. Would you agree? It's God's calling. I don't go work for Christian men in Christian companies dealing with only Christian things. I go work in a heathen, stinky, smelly world. That's where I'm called to go do. How do I not become entangled? Tricky deal. Boy, tricky business. And let me say, I'm going to say one more thing, Richard, and you can ask a question. As I'm out there, the only strategy that works is that as I'm out there muddling in the manure, swimming along, that I can lift up my head every now and then and understand what my hope is and where I'm going. If I allow myself to be sucked into the manure, I'll chase the manure, end up double-minded. That's what the verse is trying to teach us. Yes, sir. What I was, in looking at your, your um, illustration, 
I see that I didn't start separated. I started in Canaan. Actually, I started separated a little bit because I was a little kid. But I got real entangled real quick. And I had to go over to be separated, learn what that meant, and then I could come back out. I don't, I don't argue with the process. And, and the hope that I have came from the fact that I could be unentangled, focused, and then come back out. The problem is, if I don't ever go back to getting separated, I keep falling deeper and deeper in the into the entanglement. And that's the problem. Let me say to you guys, the reason I draw this picture is the fact that the only difference between me standing here and there is my hope. That's the only thing that differentiates those two. It's not, it all looks the same. You're not going to see any difference. You're going to see me walking around saying the same words, doing the same things, having the same business cards. But the difference in here is what's in the gut of my hope. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Key motivational issue. It's what separated Joseph and Lot. Lot gave into it in the world. He said, I want to be a man of the gate. And he was a fake. He said, I want to be of the world. Give me Zor. What did he hope in? I wanted the world. But I knew who God was. But I wanted the world. And it cost him everything. It cost him the whole nine yards. Well, I think it's the cosmos. It is the influence of uh, the unregenerate. It's the it's Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> Beg your pardon? Well, it could be materialism. It's those who not, do not believe. It is the society of the non-believers. It's the society you live in. See, once again, let's go back, David. In the Jerusalem time, the Jewish strategy was what? Separation. Church gathered. Separation. I have a Christian community. Jews did business with Jews. Jews married Jews. Jews only dealt with Jews. And people stood outside and looked in and said, what a God. That's incredible. That was his strategy. You read it. It's right there. Now he comes along and he says, Christ on the cross, rip the curtain. We're going to play this game differently. It's now the church scattered. What is the world, David? It's me wandering around out there. It's everywhere is the world. And the, God did not call us to have a bunch of people stand outside the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church on Sunday and say, wow, what a God. Huh? That's not his strategy. His strategy is you executing from the power of God inside you in the marketplace on a daily basis. And they see you and they say, let your light so shine before men that they may see whose good works, George? Your good works and do what? Isn't that an interesting transition? Let my light so shine before men that they see my good works. Everything's, everything's a personal pronoun. But somehow when they see through that, what do they say? Praise God. What a God. Is that the church scattered? That's the church scattered. Is that not correct? Guys, when you walk out, you may be the only representation of God that a man ever sees. You are the light wandering around in that neighborhood out there. And so he says to you, have a hope so clear in you that the guy's saying, how did you do that? How do you do that? You were trying to say something, TJ? Isn't the world a I would yield to that, and it may be the cosmos, it may be satanical, but the issue is I don't think we need to worry about it. If we just leave the room and drive a couple blocks up here, we're back in the world. And that is the world system 
of the way it treats people, and it's the business community. It's everything around us. Uh, let me say to you, any hope that is not God-driven is the world. Is that a fair enough definition? Okay. We'll stop there then. <laughs> I hope that's clear. Okay. Now, and I, I'm, not, I'm, making, I'm not making light of your question. I'm simply, when I go in there and it's a motivation scheme that's separate from God's, you're in the world. Is that clear? Yes, David. He says first not to be entangled. That's a clear commit. That's a clear commandment. And I'm saying, how do you define entangled? And as I search the scriptures, the way is what? What is your hope? If my hope is in the world, then I'm entangled. It's like this. Because when I came to Christ, and I, this is a, an analogy, so just bear with me. I became a football player, so he put shoulder pads on me, right, and knee pads and elbow pads. This beautiful helmet with the grid across my face. I'm protected. So I walk over and jump in a swimming pool and try to swim with it. That's stupid. God didn't design me to swim in the swimming pool. Are you with me? I'm not wired to be that. I'm wired to be a man of God. And so when I walk out here, and I've got the Spirit of God in me, and I try to be something other than I'm not, I'm going to be the unhappiest man in the business community, in the whole world, because I'm trying to mix the deal. I ask God to save me and give me the Spirit. But by the way, thank you for the football uniform. I think I'll go swim in a swim race. So I think you missed the point, Gail. Come back here. Let's talk about it. I want to review this with you one more time. Are we together? If, if he's going to use that Mercedes to evangelize guys at the country club mm -hmm. and be a light in that community and that's what God placed him, then maybe it's okay. But yeah. if he drives, you know, if he's a, a roofer and he wants this Mercedes so that he can show off because he's got such a great roofing business, wrong. You're in the world. Forget it. God, God will give it to you, but man, you don't know the the problem you're going to have. Let, me, let me make one more point. When I'm in this area, I want to tell you it really gets fuzzy. I don't know where the line ends and the line begins. You need accountability and you need to seriously think about this issue. I don't want to just dwell on this forever because I want to go on a couple more things. But it is a very serious matter. Jim, we're standing up. Is there a reason? Okay, we're not. Okay. Let me, let me, uh, let me suggest something to you. Remember, I'm not, this is not an exhaustive discuss, a discussion. I'm just trying to challenge you to think about this, okay? Is that fair? I really encourage you to think about this. When I was a child and I was born, I had three things I needed. I needed to be fed, I needed to be kept clean, and I needed to be loved and kept warm. That's the three things I needed. And so my mother and dad did that. They held me, they hugged me, they wiped my little bottom, they stuck food in my mouth. Boy, I loved it. And I hoped in my parents to determine what I hoped for. They fed me apple sauce. I said, fantastic. 
applesauce. That's good stuff. How did I know it was good stuff? Because my dad put it in my mouth. I hoped in him, and he determined what I hoped for. Are we together? Mm -hmm. You hear the analogy so far? And he said, applesauce, and I said, good, applesauce. Put in mouth, feed, eat. I got a couple of years under me, and one day they took me down and gave me some ice cream. Mm. And I said, ice cream, mmm, no more applesauce, ice cream. <laughs> That's what I hoped for. Yeah. And Dad said, no, you don't hope for ice cream. You hope for applesauce. So we struggled a little bit, but I said, okay, you've been a good guy so far. We'll go with the game. You keep putting applesauce in my mouth, I'm okay. Because I hope in you, Dad, because you haven't screwed up so far. I've been warm. I've been loved, all right, and I've been fed. Things are working along pretty good here. Are we together? You've been meeting my, this is a good deal. So as life went on, I got complicated. I got hormones. I got ambition. I got competitive. And I looked at my parents and I said, you can't answer what I hope for. Ergo, I'll quit hoping in you. Ergo, I will let what I hope for determine who I hope in. Ergo, the worst mistake I ever made in my life. Absolutely the worst mistake I ever made in my life. I had people standing in line ready to say, give me your soap. You want your back scratched? I'll scratch your back. It's never been scratched. By the way, you're going to owe me a few more things, but we'll talk about that later. Oh man, answer what you hope for, but you then have to hope in me because whatever you hope for eventually determines who you hope in. Would you agree with me on that? Are we together? Well, there's a very serious transition going on in here. When I came to Christ, as my life crashed down around me, I realized what I hoped for was taking me nowhere and that I had to turn and find something I could depend on and hope in. And God said, okay, we'll do that. I'm going to rescue you from hell. I said, I hope in you for that. Oh, that's a good deal. Way to go, God. And there's a couple other areas I want you to work in. He said, I'll, I'll do that for you. And then I said, okay, that's enough because I'm going to go over and get these other things taken care of. And he said, no, no, not, that's not the best deal. The best deal is if you hope in me, then let me tell you what to hope for. Are we together? Mm -hmm. Enormous transition in the discussion. As we become men of God, the proposition is let him tell you what is the things you should be hoping for. And the only way I can swim through this area in here is if I have a perception of what God has in mind that's important. And so I wake up in my quiet time, Dale, and I say, as I consider who you are, God, that is what's important. This is where I need to be going. And no matter how the world is drawing me, it is secondary to this. It doesn't mean I don't have desires, but they are always subject to what God has me hoped for. Are we together? And as life transcends on, guys, I have found this to be true. What it eventually reduces itself to is simply hoping in the character of God. All right? Analogy over with. Questions? Okay. Let what you hope in determine what you hope for. Never let what you hope for determine who you hope in. Don't ever let it go that way. That's death. That's double-mindedness, and that's the pit of hell. And you say, how do you raise a kid, Jackson? I said, boy, that's a darn good question. 
I desperately try to teach my children. There is a transition where you quit depending on me and you depend on God. And if I don't work at that transition, they're going to go exactly what I went through. Because I will not meet their needs. I can, I can tell you that. I will not meet their needs. I'm not going to do it. They got hormones just like I had. They got ambitions just like I have. Have all the issues I had. Is that fair enough? Okay. Discussion over with. Next one. Next point. How do I gain hope? I find the scripture four ways. Somebody read Romans 5, 3 through 5. And let me pick out, Chip, would you, oh, you, I thought you opened your Bible. Romans 5, 3 through 5, Chip. Dale, I want you to interpret what he says. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love What's it say, Dale? Let's say that uh, what that says to me is we're gonna we're gonna walk out of this place, we're gonna go back into the world, and we're gonna have uh, trials, tribulations, and tests, and that if we will stay the course and endure, it will build our character, which will lead us to hope. Okay, does everybody agree with that? Good, good interpretation. It said rejoice in your suffering, and there's other words used there, because that, that brings on endurance, which proves, is what the word really is, proves our character, which establishes our hope. Therefore, hope comes out of pain. Fair enough? Does that link to what Walt said earlier? Now, what it says is that let me just make this point, Dale. Stress, tribulation, pressure pressing down against you doesn't, doesn't give you hope. What it does is clarify what you're hoping. You truly understand what you're hoping. That's what that verse is saying. Thus, if I took Kevin and took him out to the middle of Lake Erie and dropped him, and he saw there was no way back, and I went over with Kevin and lowered a microphone out of a helicopter down to him, we'd have a clear understanding who Kevin was depending on. <laughs> Is that not true? And I strip you to the bare bone in tribulation. I run your back against the wall. Believer or non-believer, they all say, Oh God, oh God, rescue me. And all I'm saying is, is that tribulation and pain helps clarify that hope. Now, this is a pop quiz. How many of you remember what I, how the definition of how we gain convictions? They are determined in the time of calm to govern us in the time of tribulation. Hope is determined in the time of hope is determined in the time of tribulation to motivate us in the time of calm. The problem always is being motivated properly in good times. Right? That's when we screw up and become entangled. 
So as God takes us through what I call the extruding machine, or pulls us through a keyhole, if you get the picture, that's when we grasp the character of God, who I hope in, who determines what I hope for, who has established what I should give my life to so that I'm motivated properly when I'm in the sewer. ask you one more question and I'm going to get off this point. Thank you for sharing that. In the verse, what is it, what is it common about hope? And hope does not disappoint us. Now listen to me. Does the hope of the world disappoint you? Are we together? Do you believe that? Down to your tippy-tippy toes. I believe it. He says this hope will never disappoint you. Now, if I'm living a hope that never disappoints me, do you think it might show to the pagan? It just may show through? How about a guy that is sustained in his motivation, that doesn't waver day to day, but really knows what he hopes in? Do you not think that would show through? Wouldn't that be your light so shining before men they would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? sure strikes me that there's a logical linkage in there. Okay, Romans 15.4, we, t- we said this the other day on the Old Testament. What did we say about that? What were the Old Testament given to us? Instruction, endurance, encouragement, and, and, and hope. And we said, wonder why that was so. But God says one way you gain hope is a study of the Old Testament. Right? That's also 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. George, why don't you look that up? You got your Bible. 2 Thess 2, 16. First Corinthians 10, 11. So another way we get hope is what? Just through the relationship with God. He gives us hope. Knowing God gives us hope. And why would that be? Because what is the anchor phrase for all our hope? It's been said 20 times today. I have, I have this little thing that goes across my screensaver. It says G-I-I-C-H-A-M. B-I-A-H. Geek Umbia. What do you think that means? A-H-M. 
and has my best interest at heart. Guys, the summary of the whole lesson on God is two lessons. I mean, seriously, when you sum up the whole, you take the Bible and sift it and shake it and bake it, it comes down to these two truths. God is in control and has your best interest at heart, and I'm betting the whole wad on it. I throw the whole wad up on the table and I'm saying, I'm betting all my chips on that truth. Got a bit dramatic there. <laughs> you missed the pocket. That's all right. Sorry. Now. <laughs> okay, are you with me on that? That that is the summation of what that is. And God clarifies that truth for you. Every day, I review that truth. Yes, sir. Yeah, bitch. Correct. And that's what it is. You're going to bet your life. Guys, here's the deal. It's not dramatic. You bet your life on something. You bet it on the company you work for. It's okay. You want to do that? Throw it down there. You want to bet it on the city of Cleveland? Throw it out there. And you'll get moved to Maryland. (laughs) I'm sorry. Don't be mad. Don't be mad. And I go on and on, but you are gambling your life on something. Do you agree or disagree? We're working in faith on something. We're throwing it down there somewhere. My question, God says, he calls out to us through the scriptures, bet on me. Hope in me, and I'll tell you what to hope for. And it's applesauce, Jackson, and it ain't ice cream. The minute you go for ice cream, Gail, you're over here entangled. You want Zor? I'm going to let you have Zor. Don't think you really want Zor. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Uh, somebody else help me. Joe, do you have that ready available, please, sir? my version, it comes out that if we review what God has done for us, we gain hope. These two are very, very close together, and that God gives us hope. Hope is determined in a time of tribulation to motivate us in the time of calm. We are always motivated in the direction of our hope, and motivation is the main scheme. If you have a perfect purpose, Are you with me? A scripturally driven purpose, like we talked about, okay? Let's say your life is governed by a value system anchored in the Bible, i.e., great convictions. Are we together? And have a hope in the world. Tell me which one wins. Eventually, which one wins? The world. This will not prevail. This will not prevail. That always prevails. The way you're motivated always prevails. That is the truth of life. You must sort that out because that will dominate this and that will dominate that. You may not be able to articulate these perfectly. If you got that sorted out, the rest of them will begin to fall in place. I take you down these ways because these are very, very important, but the one I want to leave you with is you've got to get this straight. Because if I get this straight, I can stay where I belong, and if I stay where I belong, then I can actually have people sensing the reality of God in my life.
Hebrews 6.19. It's not how you get hope, but a truth about hope. Hebrews 6.19. Richard, you looking that up? I want you to tell me what he says, Jim Nichols. We have hope, um, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the, the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now let me rephrase the question to you, Jim. What was his analogy for hope? It was called... Read the first part. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Okay, stop. It's an anchor to our soul. Now, Jim, the question is, why did he use the analogy of an anchor? Secures you. All right? Now, let me give you the... Let me give you where this comes from. When the authors were writing, here's what they were thinking. In those days, if I went up here to one of the ports, and I'm assuming Cleveland still has ports, ships come in. When the ship comes in, what goes out and gets them? A tug. And why? Well, the big ship can't negotiate his way in park. Right? He just can't do it. He didn't know where the channel is. He's too big. So they kind of drag him along. Well, how did they do that in the old days? Did they sail down? and dock it by air, meaning they crashed into the board? No. They had to bring it in, right? The way they used to do it is they had guys who understood the harbor, and they would get in their dinghy boat and row out to the big boat. The big boat would lower the anchor into the dinghy. He would then, the guy with the dinghy would, this is a ship, he would go down the channel and drop the anchor. And when he dropped the anchor, the guys would pull on the rope, doing what? Bringing the big boat safely through the channel to that point. He would pick the anchor up, go to the next point on the channel, and likewise, till he docked it. This is the picture he's drawing. And what it says to you is, you guys can't see the beginning from the end. You don't know your left hand from your right hand. Jesus says, in the fog and confusion of life, give me your anchor and I'll take you to safe harbor. I will get you through this junk. Let me have your anchor, and I'll row to the next safe point, and you pull on the rope of my teaching and what I tell you to hope for, and guys, you will have the life you want. That's what the illustration says. What an incredible illustration. In the fog of life where I can't figure out the left from the right, I've got this anchor I can pull on, and I know that I'm on firm footing as things happen around me, that I'm going the right way, that I will dock safely for God at the end, safely with God. All right? The reason for this talk is to challenge you to think through your position on hope. It's not exhaustive. Let me give you three pieces of trivia. Hope. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Why was love greater than hope? What, what did t Walt teach you? 
What was love greater than faith and hope? Yes, Brett. It is the character of God. Love is a character of God that we have in common with men. Hope is not. Hope is uniquely human. All right? That's point number one. It's something we must have. Point number two. There are... Four books in the Bible where the hope, the word hope, is never used. Four books and only four books I can find. What are those four books? That's your pop quiz. Say again? Who said Revelation? Good. Any others? That's one of them. Okay, I'll give you the answer, then you tell me why. Are you ready? You get to tell me why. The Gospels. The Gospels and Revelations are the only four books that the word hope is not used in. What would that be? Because we see the hope. God is with us. Our hope is God. Therefore, the word hope does not need to be used. Now, what does that mean to Gail Jackson? One, it says to me that the Bible is ain't no accident. It's divinely inspired. You tell me, anybody, these authors sat back and figured that out. So, well, let's drop the word hope out of here, because sometime about 2,000 years from now, a little fat little gray-headed guy is going to say, hey, let's hope out of there. No. I mean, they just, God inspired, it didn't need to be in there. It did not need to be in there. And second thing, it just drives a stake through my heart, is the fact the hope is not what I hope for, but it's in the personage of God. Are we, are we together on that? We see hope always far. Those two books illustrate its end is the key thing. Does that make sense to you guys? Major point. Joe, did you, are you with me on that? That's important. Okay, the third piece of trivia. Why is because God's with us in Revelation. There is no question, is there a God in the book of Revelation? That, that question has gone off the table. We may argue today, is there a God? In the book of Revelation, they don't argue that one. They kind of lament it, but they don't. <laughs> and if there's something there, what am I betting on? Am I just betting a foot? Is it because you guys are going to think me acute? You're going to forget who I am. And next week, you won't even remember. They'll say, Gail Jackson will come back, and you're going to say, who's she? But that's as deadly serious business. And so when I see something like that, that's very important to me. It says to me, I'm betting on a winning horse. And guys, I like to bet on winning horses. I'm too old to bet on big, long charm. My runway's too short. That's why we use the phrase. I see the end of the runway up there. This darn old airplane's got to get airborne. So this is a very serious matter. Third truth is, fear and hope have this in common, that a man without fear has no hope. Is it important to fear God? Yes, because if you do not, you cannot hope in it. A man who has no fear has no hope. He has no reason to have hope. It is good to understand your fragileness. It is good to understand your depravity. Because out of it stimulates your hope. Because in it you see the fear of what you're dealing with. Today's Christianity is teaching you there is no fear of God. God is all love. 
As Walter said, that's a different gospel than I see in the Bible. I don't see it in the Bible at all. I see Paul very articulate. I see Jesus very articulate on this issue. Absolutely pulling no quarter that God is a God to be feared. He's a God of love and enormous compassion. He's a God of grace. None of that is, that is all true. But he expects us to be on our face when we get in front of him. Okay, that's enough. It is worthy of a study. It is worthy of your time, guys. Because I would like to be always associated with the band of men that in their hearts they reverence Christ as Lord. They are always prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in them. Call them to account for the hope that is in them. And they always do it, which I didn't catch in your version, with gentleness and reverence. Guys, let us be abandoned in that way. Have your purpose ironed out. Understand your convictions. And replace the motivational schema the world has driven into your brain with the motivational scheme that God brings to the table. It is a lifetime journey, but one worthy of your time. Let me pray for you. Excuse me, George, yes. I'll tell you what, I'll wait till next year on that one. But let me tell you a question. They interviewed, they interviewed, oh, yes, you will. They interviewed, I can't remember the guy's name right now, one of the great theologians in the 50s and the 60s. And they said, if you had one hour on a train with a man, he was in Europe, how would you witness to him? He said, I would spend the first 50 minutes letting him determine that his hope was futile. In the last 10 minutes, I'd tell him about a hope that lasted. Well, that's an interesting evangelistic strategy. You don't have to tell them anything. You just let them talk. What are you hoping? What are you betting on? What's the good deal you're going for? And slowly but surely, they know they're in futility. All you've got to say to them is a hope that lasts. A hope in a God of the universe. Do a lot of listening. Ninety percent of all testimonies are listening. I assure you guys. You don't have to tell them they're in trouble. They'll tell you. Agreed? Let me bless us. I mean, yeah, pray for us. God, we thank you for this time, and I thank you that you even let me talk about these things. It scares me, God, that I don't do the job <coughs> adequate to the calling of what you've given us. I ask you to forgive my inadequacies and bless these men's heart and grow them closer to you. I pray, God, for a renewed motivation in the year to come, that they'll talk about hope and that they will clarify in their life who they hope in and let them consider your greatness. Let them learn to be on their face before you. We are thankful, God, that you give us a hope that is an anchor to our soul. And we depend on that as we inadequately try to paddle our little boats around in this sea. Because, God, we bank on you. Give us a safe trip back to our homes today, God. Let us be back with our lives and love them and exalt them and nurture them and re-stimulate us such that our wife will ask us, tell me about the hope as in you. Amen. Thank you, guys. Good being Thank with you. you.